0: What if the revolution of 1776 had collapsed? What if, like a banana republic, disgruntled soldiers had conspired to overthrow the elected representatives of the people after they'd won independence? We'll join General George Washington as heated passions threaten to end the American experiment before it begins next. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Now number one in podcasting, thanks to loyal listeners like you. In this episode, our time machine travels back to the last days of the American Revolution to track down rumors of an unthinkable plot by the Continental Army to mutiny over lack of pay, and broken promises by Congress. Only George Washington stood against what history calls the Newburgh Conspiracy, named after the town on the Hudson River where the plotters schemed. Or did they? Well, no matter what really happened, it's a good thing Washington was there. Who else but the titanic, indispensable man could have stilled the passions of men that may have included such patriots as Alexander Hamilton and James Madison. After all, these guys had just committed treason once, hadn't they? They just rebelled against their own government because they felt it wasn't serving their needs. Why not do it again if you meet the new boss and he's the same as the old boss? Infiltrating the cabal against the government to see just how far it went is Professor David Head, who brings us a crisis of peace, George Washington, the Newburgh Conspiracy, and the fate of the American Revolution. David Head is a history professor at the University of Central Florida, whose work has been supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities and George Washington's own Mount Vernon. Professor Head earned his B.A. in history from Niagara University, and his Ph.D. from the University of Buffalo, the State University of New York. For more on this and his previous three books, visit DavidHeadHistory.com, like David Head History on Facebook, or, or follow David Head Ph.D. on Twitter. Okay. Now that we've tracked down the grumbling Continental Army officers tired of empty promises from a U.S. capital in far-off Philadelphia, let's join David Head and check in on George Washington as the great warrior confronts a crisis of peace. I'm joined via Skype by Professor David Head, Author of A Crisis of Peace, George Washington, The Newburgh Conspiracy, and the Fate of the American Revolution. Thank you for making time to chat with the History Author Show.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here today and I look forward to our conversation.
0: Well, when I see the words Newburgh Conspiracy, when I see something about the Newburgh Conspiracy, my ears immediately perk up because it's a story we don't associate with the founding generation. We look at them as, hey, they're those guys that are in statues or on a relief wall, or their names are carved somewhere like Valley Forge. And we forget, or it's so easy to forget, that they were real people. You're laughing a little, so you know what I mean, right? We we forget. They had all the same concerns about paying their bills, and they weren't these giants. I often quote Winston Churchill's favorite school song at Harrow, which was called Giants. The first verse is all about there were these magnificent giants of old, and they were never lame or stiff or sore. They could throw for 100 yards or more. We have stories like that about George Washington, about being this massive, tireless guy who always did and said the right thing. Then the last verse of the song is, I think it's not true. We're not all cast in a pygmy mold, which is one of the lines that's in the earlier part. They're just like us, and it's up to us. We all measure up to these giants of old. And so the Newberg conspiracy, where you have people Doing something potentially, you have rumors of it, you have the fears of it, it brings them to our level and we can relate, feel better about ourselves and be inspired then by the good
1: things we did. That's one of the things that, um, that drew me to the project at first was the idea that these are the founding fathers and they're possibly conspiring about something. They're kind of fooling around with a military coup. That's something that will be big if true, as the, as the, the cliche goes now. Um, and, you know, I knew enough about the f- politics of the founding generation that they, they were hardball politicians. I mean, they they were not necessarily nice to each other. That kind of thing comes through in the, the kind of formal language they often use, calling each other sir and all that kind of thing. Yeah, they could be brawlers, too. So that's one of the things that, that drew me to the project was the idea of looking more at the underside or the underbelly of how politics was actually done. It's not necessarily, you know, a bunch of guys very stiff and formal and getting along. They they were out to get each other. Or at least they could be.
0: That's the sausage being made. You say, sir. And I kind of laughed to myself and thought of George Washington. You know, he could say, sir, to you as he does to Alexander Hamilton. When he's at the top of those stairs that. Famous moment they have their break in their relationship, and he says, You have kept me waiting, sir, these 15 minutes. And so (laughs) it doesn't read like much necessarily to today, where I'm sure you'd be cursing the guy and dropping F bombs and screaming at him. But if you were there at the time and you were speaking that way and that language, I mean, if you hear somebody curse somebody out in a foreign language doesn't necessarily mean anything either, right? But these were the ways that they spoke at the time. And I like those moments, not because I want to see them cut down to size, but because it makes them relatable. And it reminds us that this wasn't as magical a time as we might think. It wasn't something that Well, it was just lightning in a bottle and preordained. And so excuse us for being lousy people and lousy citizens now and then when we all are. Mm -hmm. We all fail in our lives. We all don't meet expectations. This is a moment after the British have surrendered and peace is being negotiated in Europe. We might expect the Continental Army to be kicking back, to be enjoying that victory at Yorktown, to be getting accolades and praise from their countrymen. That's not the case. So set the stage for us. What's the actual relationship between the civilian leadership and the military when readers open that first page of A Crisis of
1: Peace? Yeah, so the story begins with the American victory at Yorktown in October of 1781. And that's often remembered as the end of the American Revolution. Now, it's the last major campaign. And the British surrender. And and in the long term, that's one of the things that gets the British moving towards negotiating peace in a serious way. But there's still two more years to go in the war. So most of the action in the book takes place in this kind of weird limbo where there's not active fighting, active campaigning, but there's not peace either. (laughs) The relationship between the army and the civilian leadership, and I, I kind of use the Continental Congress and some of the state legislatures as the an embodiment of the popular conception of attitudes towards the army. The relationship is it's a difficult one because there's a lot of ideological suspicion about armies and professional soldiers that is widespread in the 18th century. There's a mentality that professional armies are not to be trusted. And that's something you see in the colonies, becoming the United States, but also in Britain. To be English in this period is to just have a rock-solid assumption that armies are dangerous and that even an army of your own country can be dangerous to your liberties, uh, especially if that army is just sitting around with not a lot to do. So that's kind of the situation that the army finds itself in following Yorktown. There's not a lot of fighting, and that leads people to start to think, well, why do we still have this army? And if it's not to fight the British— then they're probably going to want to fight somebody. <laughs> you know, Armies are not uh, just just there for nothing. They could be turned against the people. So there's kind of a suspicion about what the real motives of the army are that's going on in this period. Now, some of that, that was present throughout the war, but kind of the urgency of fighting and winning the war had tamped some of that down to some degree. It's hard to to argue that, well, we don't really need a professional military force when the British are on the doorstep or they've conquered your city. And then, yeah, you need a professional military to fight against them. But once the pressure seems to be relieved, some of those old ideological ways of thinking come back and there's a kind of questioning about, well, what is the value of having this military? There's also a kind of practical question, which is that the army is really expensive. Just the, the daily expense of keeping the army in the field, of feeding and clothing them, it's just enormous. So there's a lot of sort of practical pressure to get the army or at least as many guys as you can out of the service, off the, the government's payroll, so that you can reduce expenses. Now, George Washington sees things going kind of lax, and that's one of the things that he is greatly concerned about between 1781 after Yorktown and through the end of the war in 1783. He's afraid that people are taking victory for granted that they're not going to support the army in this period, that they want to get back to the business of living, of farming and buying and selling and goods and all that kind of thing. And he has to remind people the war's not over yet. And he really likes to deploy that old Roman saying, if you want peace, prepare for war, or some version of that. And he reminds people that over and over again when the congratulations roll in, you know, congratulations on your great victory over the British. This means that our our independence is assured. Washington has to write back and say, thank you, sir, for your compliment and all of that. And then the reminder, we need still to be prepared for war because we don't have independence yet. So that's the situation that the army and its relationship with the civilian population, there's a lot of tensions there that I think perhaps we miss if we simply look back on the war as a great patriotic victory that everyone in the country was supporting. And we've grown up with
0: confidence in the civilian leadership over the military, so we don't have that fear they had. They would have had that fear, or they did have that fear, of Oliver Cromwell, and they had seen coups in other countries. And it's something, as modern readers, fortunately we can't relate to because we haven't lived through a coup. We don't fear that the generals are going to march on Washington. I mean, the Bonus Army even is 100 years ago, and they weren't seeking to take over the government, but they were doing something very similar here to what this is rumored to be happening in a crisis of peace, right? They were marching on Washington, the soldiers, because they had been promised a bonus and they wanted it now after the Great War because here's the Great Depression. That's not even in living memory where we've experienced something like this. We all know about firing Douglas MacArthur, the president of the United States. Harry Truman does that. So I like that A Crisis of Peace brings us back to that. And where at the time they would have believed these rumors. And this is something that it's, it does catch our imagination, even if we can't relate to it, because it has all the elements and all the reasons we read thrillers, right? It has intrigue, questions of loyalty, It has military officers that are going rogue, potentially, the threat of a government overthrow. This is great to read about in fiction, not to live through. And you write in A Crisis of Peace that you doubt a true conspiracy unfolded at Newburgh, but it's nonetheless a grave threat and a danger to this young nation. So I wanted to ask you about that. How how can both things be true? How can we not be sure? How deep the conspiracy went or if it really got out of the just griping in the back of a saloon phase or if it was real, how does that balance for people that are going to read the book? If they're going to read it, what will they learn and why is it important to know whether it was just a rumor or it was something serious where guys are saying, hey, let's march on, on the Capitol. I was going to say Washington. It's not Washington yet. <laughs> how do we know? Why is it important <laughs> to know the difference?
1: In some ways, it would have been better for me, and from a marketing standpoint, if I'd been able to find a true conspiracy and then finally unlock yeah. the plot and the secret at the birth of the United States. That kind of uh, copyrights itself. That's what gets you invited on the cable news shows and yeah. all that kind of stuff.
0: Easier to pitch to a publisher, too, I imagine.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. See, yeah right, right, when I'm trying to pitch nuance yeah. and, and context and subtlety, that doesn't quite go the same way. It's important because, again, this just one of the things that first drew me to the project was... If there was a coup at the very beginning of the United States as a nation, if that's how the American Revolution really ended, with the army possibly plotting against civilian leadership, well, then that changes what the revolution was all about. It makes it something far more dangerous, far darker. And you can see that if that were true, then even some of the founders, the founding generation, didn't really believe in the revolution as an idea. So we would have had something of a fraud from the start. Now, what I found is that I could never find good evidence that there was some kind of plot uh, that was being orchestrated by figures in Philadelphia trying to control the army that is encamped along the Hudson River near Newburgh, New York. I didn't find that there was that kind of coordination or any kind of puppet master kind of pulling the strings from behind the scenes. And I didn't find good evidence, or really any evidence, that convinced me that any senior figures in the army were trying to push Washington out of the way or anything like that. So finding that absence of evidence, now that doesn't necessarily mean it didn't happen. It could just mean that they were really they were really good plotters. Yeah, and they covered their track well. But what I found is some sort of alternative explanations that I think make more sense to me is, how, you know, is more true to how people really, really act. And things like, I think what happened was that the... Officers, they were angry, and then they kind of got pushed over the edge by waiting so long for a response to their grievances that they had sent for Congress. And I suspect it's one of those things where you get some guys who are discontented, you get them in a room, and they start talking, and they start saying, well, you know, everything is lost. No one's going to do anything about this. Washington is too moderate. We have to take it into our own hands. And if we're gonna, something's going to be done, we have to do it, you know, and that's what they do. There's officers, a group of officers, they write a letter that's circulated anonymously calling on the other, other officers to meet and to discuss a stronger, more strongly worded petition to Congress. Uh, now, they're going outside of Washington's authority, so that's kind of a big deal in and of itself. I think that there's kind of a series of misunderstandings at the heart of the, the so-called conspiracy one of these is that the letter that the officers write it was drafted by a man named John Armstrong Jr. The letter itself is kind of uneven. There are parts where Armstrong he makes various, very reasonable demands, asking the officers to meet and consider a new a new letter to Congress. He says the letter should be lively but decent. Huh. <laughs> it, yeah, I mean lively but decent. Okay, that's what that's a good writing should be, right? I mean, not not abusive but not boring either. But later in the letter, he then writes about how the officers should also consider their alternatives. By that, he means that if the war continues, the officers should think about not continuing to fight, that they should just leave the civilians to their own devices, to their own fate. Or if peace is declared, he implies that the officers should just refuse to go home, that they should refuse to lay down their arms and you know, stay in the field and use their leverage while they have it. Everybody seizes on that last part, the alternatives, which is extremely inflammatory, and they ignore kind of the earlier, more moderate, more reasonable uh, language of the earlier part of the letter where he talks about a, a decent but lively letter. This is one of the cases where you know they wrote this over a few hours and then released it the next morning. And it's the kind of thing I tell my students, you know, don't don't think you can just knock something out the night before it's due <laughs> yeah. because you might want to think about it a little bit longer and really put think... it
0: in a drawer as Ben Franklin did.
1: Exactly. Done, you know, we, we all write, you know, emails or texts in anger or a tweet or something You're like uh, maybe I should have thought about that a little bit more. So, yes, I think they probably should have, you know, slept on it, worked on it the next day, released it you know, a little bit after it They're able to cool off a little bit. Why I think this is all still very dangerous is just kind of what I've implied already, that once these ideas get out there, once you've made this inflammatory language, that can snowball very easily. You get more guys possibly say, yeah, that's right. We have been treated really badly. We have to do something. Washington has abandoned us. And again, you know, you get a group of angry people in a room, they yeah. just feed on each other's anger. <laughs> I don't know if they have uh, homeowners associations where you live, but I belong to a HOA. <laughs> the, there are a lot of these in Florida. And you get a lot of uh, people who, you know, one on one would be fine with their neighbors, right? Right. Yeah. Get them all in a room, someone brings up landscaping, and why isn't my grass getting cut and yours is? And, blah, 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 you know, and it's like, ah, right? It just kind of gets out of control. So that very easily could have happened. Now, the ideological part of this is also very important. You mentioned Cromwell. In some ways, people in the 18th century, they know their history too well. Huh. As a history professor, not supposed to say that, right? <laughs> you could never know history well enough. But for those people, the, the English Civil War is real, and it's a real thing that's really right before them, not a long time before. And they think that the way the world works is that that could easily happen again. It's just a couple of missteps and we're back to another English civil war, because that's always what tyrants are trying to do is, is to take over power for themselves. So they think, you know, this aha, this is exactly like it was in the 1640s. It's happening again 150, 150 years later, 140 years later. Okay, This is always what happens when you have an army trying to end the war. So they can't just make an, a kind of innocent mistake or an accident. It has to be a plot. And that's the way that everybody thinks. I should mention, you It's
0: team. kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, yeah. too, because the government's not trusting them because they may rebel. And then by not trusting them or not arming them, not keeping them as you know, strong as they can, they're they're causing it and then saying, oh, yeah, we, we've solved this. Look, see, we were right all along. <laughs> so it's exactly.
1: So, right. It's dangerous because it, it can become very easily a self-fulfilling prophecy. They're acting in response to their fears about what might happen, but that reaction is going to bring about the event that they're supposedly trying to avoid. Yeah, self-fulfilling prophecy, that's where the danger really lies.
0: You reminded me of something there. You talked about people getting together, and I thought of a line from the Sting song all this time, and he says, Men go crazy in congregations. They only get better one by one. And the one here is going to eventually be George Washington. And fortunate for that, you talked about that snowballing, and we've all seen it. Think of the end of Young Frankenstein, right? Getting the villagers out there first—it's just a community meeting, like (laughs) maybe like yours there, as you're saying, in a condo association or something. Hurt! A riot is an ugly thing, and I think that it is just about time that we had (laughs) one. Or The Twilight Zone, The Monsters Are Due on Main Street. I'm looking at Ann Serling's book here, As I Knew Him, My Dad, Rod Serling. And they come into that town. They just introduce a little bit of, of stress there, the unknown, and some problems. And that gradually, you use the word snowball, which is so perfect for it. And there are all these people who we think better of. We hope that they will be better. Alexander Hamilton right now, enjoying a huge boom. You write of him in A Crisis of Peace, quote, Gossip was a standard part of any politician's arsenal. And there I felt bad for you. I felt sympathy for you as a historian. Great. Not only do I have to dig through a conspiracy that people, if it did exist, are trying to hide, but now they're gossiping and writing stuff in their letters. So the things I do have may just be what you get in your condo association, right? It's, (laughs) hey, Lenny didn't take his garbage in last night, and the raccoons got in it, and I had to clean it up. And Lenny wasn't even home that night, that kind of thing. Again, all very human stuff. I love that. I love that you're bringing it alive. I I envy your students because of the way you brought alive the Newburgh conspiracy here in A Crisis of Peace. Tell us what role gossip plays in this story, and how did you meet that challenge of separating battalions of unreliable narrators from the ones that were telling you the truth from the pages of history?
1: The gossip question, I follow the work of Joanne Freeman. She's a professor at Yale, and has she wrote about gossip as part of the, the grammar of political combat in the early republic. And so, so, so reading her work really gave me kind of the conceptual tools to be able to deal with, you know, how do you tease out these uh, letters that are, on the surface, they seem like you can kind of follow what they're talking about, but underneath the surface, they're doing something else. So it's always kind of being aware of, well, what is this letter trying to accomplish? What is the relationship between the person doing the writing and the person who's reading it? And to be aware that the person reading it might be more, a larger number of people than just the person who's named as the recipient because people would pass this around. Or uh, you always had to be aware of the fact that somebody who's not supposed to read it could get a hold of it and read it. So being aware of, the letters, the correspondence as objects, right? And, and that, that, that can be hard because I read most of these on the computer screen now, because uh, a lot of the letters are in the, the Founders Online collection put out by the National Archives, which is absolutely stunning and is wonderful as a resource. Everybody should check it out, just amazing. But you know, reading the, the words on the, on the screen is different from holding it as a, a letter. You gotta re- remind yourself, this was actually s- written by somebody To accomplish a specific purpose, it was sent and read by somebody else, right? Who had to respond to it. So as far as gossip goes, one of the things that that Freeman does just did a wonderful job of opening up for me is the ability to see what else is going on beyond the words on the page. That sometimes sharing information is more than just the information. It's about building a relationship with the person, between the people who are writing and reading the letters. And you know, it's not just about just sharing, uh, you know, news of what happened, but it's about, you know, unmasking some kind of larger thinking about the way the world works. So sometimes, what seems innocent what would seem conspiratorial, if you were just kind of following the language on the page, you can see that and say, okay, this is not necessarily that they think there's really something going on. It's that they're cementing their relationship with each other. It's a way of signaling, I know the way the world works. The way you know the world, the way the world works. We are on the same team. We can trust each other. We're not one of those dupes who is blind to the machinations of our enemy, that kind of thing. So it's really uh, the way you, the way I dealt with it is really trying to ask myself, what is the relationship between these people? What are they trying to accomplish? And being aware that sometimes what they say on the page is not really the message that's being communicated, having kind of skepticism about that. Um, and then ultimately, a lot of it, you know, a lot of what a historian does is just ask, I just ask myself, you know, how do I really know this, and does this seem reasonable to me? Not necessarily a scientific guarantee that what you're having is, you know, is the is absolutely what happened or what they were thinking. That's really impossible. I mean, we're all, some levels, a mystery to other people, often mysteries to ourselves, right? You think about the complexity of of human motivation. Yeah. So I don't get hung up too much on that. But I just try to build what I think is a reasonable case, given what I can know from the letters, from what we know about the particular people involved, what the culture of the time is, kind of building all those things together. And then in the book, I try to be very open about what what I can know and what can't be known, and how I'm putting the pieces together together. And I'm sure other people could put the pieces together in a a different way that is also reasonable. So it's kind of a a reasonable standard is what I'm going for and how I put that very cryptic information together. That brings me to a letter that you
0: cite in A Crisis of Peace. It's by Colonel Louis Nicola. He suggests in May 1782 that his fellow officers should join him in establishing their own state in the uncharted West and name a king. So by their own state, I guess they mean that they're going to have their own country. They're going to go out there and have an emperor, American emperor by David O. Stewart, about Aaron Burr and that conspiracy. How common was venting ideas that are so contrary to the high-minded rhetoric of liberty underpinning the revolution.
1: Yeah. So in that letter in particular is a great example of what I was talking about before, because if you just take out some of his choice quotes there, take them out of context, they sound really, really bad. And if you say, you know, an American officer was planning to desert the army at the end of the war and establish a new monarchy in the Western part of the country, it sounds really bad. And then you say he shared this idea with Washington. It makes it seem even worse. Yeah. Yeah.
0: General, the general, general, the general, right? general, and yeah, then the so general it, when we say Washington in this context. Yeah, so can
1: you imagine? Yeah, so it's, and then he read it and didn't kill the guy. Right. <laughs> but when you start to read the whole thing and you consider the context of the army is mostly sitting around doing nothing and uh, and the ways in which they feel they've been wronged by the civilian population, and then you consider that the letter is sent privately to Washington. It's not, you know, made public and Washington writes a private response. You can start to see that, okay, this guy is probably not completely well thought out what he what he's doing. Um, He does mention that he has had conversations with other officers who feel the same.
0: We would say venting, I guess, in modern parlance. I mean, we've all watched Law and Order and in our own lives we know it. But in Law and Order, it's always Jerry Orbach goes and he sees somebody and they say, well, your friend told me that you threatened to kill him. You said I would like to kill him. I wish he was dead. And the person says, well, I say that uh, about lots of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean I'm actually going to kill him, right? Now, that person, of course, is not the killer. It's going to be the guest star. Right. But we have, we have to go through that. And if you say that about somebody and they turn up dead, we can all feel that dread. But we've all said things like that in our heated moments. We're not proud of them, but we also don't have to write them down. I can call you and I can say, gosh, I, that one student, he's, he's such a, a weasel, you know, for colleagues in school. He's, he's not good. And gosh, I just, I just wish he would fall off a cliff then the kid falls off a cliff. I look really bad. Or somebody hears our conversation. I look really bad. But of course, it's a metaphor and it's something that I'm passionate about. And so here it all is in print. We all know how hard it is to get things in print to sound like you really mean them. And as you were speaking about those letters, I thought that's something I hadn't considered before, that that's part of their style or part of the goal of their style is they have to convey their meaning to somebody they may not see for years. They may not see face-to-face more than once or twice. They can't call on the phone. They may not even be remember exactly what they looked like because this is a period you're not going to be carrying a photo around. So to get your meaning across, you write completely in a different way. You have to write very differently in these letters and maybe hit things a little harder than we would today where we would use some nuance and, gosh, I don't want to put that down in print.
1: Right. That's something that's so hard for us to recover is the kind of personal relationship that gives context and communicates meaning, right? When you know somebody comes by my office, wants to complain about students, right? I know this person. I know they don't really hate their students and all you know, that kind of thing. But if somebody had been you know, eavesdropping on that and tweets it out, guess what my professor just said? Right. And then it gets out of the news and all of a sudden that person's job is, is in danger because – All the context is stripped out and just the the words remain. That's really an issue in historical interpretation is trying to put back all that context and to understand what's going on and to recreate that for the reader. So that's one of the things I I try to do in, in puzzling over these letters part of the reason
0: they would have their letters burned, right? We all wish as historians we could go back in time and grab that match that's in somebody's hand and say, hey, don't burn George Washington's papers. Well, what are you doing? Don't. I know he wanted to burn them, but I want to read them. And so then you say, well, maybe this is the kind of reason why. They didn't want people picking through those and finding their, their worst quote and their worst moment. And so they said, you know, I'd rather just get rid of this entirely. As painful as that is
1: for us. When you hear about that? You're like, you monsters!
0: Yeah, I know. It drives you nuts, right? I need
1: that. That stuff, save it. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I wanted to footnote that, and <laughs> I want to be able to go online and yeah. find it, but you can't.
1: Yeah, how dare you think of your reputation above my needs to write about you 200 years later?
0: <laughs> yeah, it reminds you that they were real people, and we we just look at them as a collection of their letters. I'm looking at a five-volume set here, for instance, of Theodore Roosevelt's letters, and it's every letter that he ever wrote. Well, he's a prolific letter writer, and he wrote all those things down, but there's plenty of things that he said that aren't in there, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's things that he would like to edit out. A guy shot from the hip a lot, and gosh, the attorney general talks about maybe uh, arresting him during the— mm-hmm during the Great War when he's speaking out against Wilson. and So this is the kind of thing where you would like to be that fly on the wall, and it kind of made me a little bit, tiny, tiny bit understanding why they take that match to their letters. Mm -hmm. George Washington decides against returning to his beloved Mount Vernon. We talked earlier about them wanting to go back to their farms. What would happen? They felt that they had been promised land, or at least a chance to go back to their land. And you write that it's because, quote, he dared not leave the army in its current state. Describe for us the commander-in-chief you introduced to your readers, and then show us this portrait or bring to life this portrait on the cover of a crisis of peace, because this guy's not a natural orator. He's not used to addressing large crowds. He shows up here at this meeting and he surprises him. That's one of his tactics, right? He comes to the Temple of Virtue and he uses a surprise attack like he did on the Hessians and, as he did so many times in his career, sneaks up on the men. So bring us into that room. Say we've gotten this letter, we've been summoned to come there. What's the feeling? What's the anticipation? What's the weather, time of year? What are we expecting there? And then Washington walks in the room.
1: Yeah, so the climactic moment of the book is on March 15th, 1783, when Washington comes to a building. Some people called it the Temple of Virtue. It was kind of a meeting hall, social hall that they constructed in the camp. Washington is less imaginative. He simply calls it the new building, <laughs> which, uh, yeah. <laughs> Where, where's your imagination, George?
0: Yeah, very stripped down.
1: Anyway, so it's, it's March of 1783. I grew up in upstate New York in the Buffalo area, March is kind of blah. Um, that's not a fun month. I have the, the, the weather report. It had snowed a couple of days earlier. So you can imagine it's probably kind of in the, in the high 20s, low 30s, that kind of situation. There's probably snow still on the ground. The men are not expecting Washington. So he does take them by surprise. When the anonymous letter had circulated through camp, Washington responded by postponing the meeting that Armstrong had called for. And he'd put it off for several days, and in his orders, putting off the meeting, Washington asks the men to prepare a report and have it sent to him, which indicates right that he's not going to be there. Because why would he need a report of what happened if he was there? Huh. So he's taking the men by surprise. The March 15th date, right? That's a, a date right, that that's ominous in history. Yeah, especially for educated officers who know their their Roman history. We also know their Shakespeare, right, which is where you really get the, the story from in the uh, English-speaking world. I think that date is just a coincidence. It just happened to be the Saturday of that week where Washington wanted to give them a few days to cool off, and he pushed the meeting back to a Saturday. The calendar had fallen differently. It would have been March 14th and wouldn't have been quite so significant that the Ides of March date. <laughs> Washington is in his late 40s, early 50s by 1783, and he is already being feted as the, the father of his country, the great victor of the American Revolution. He spent the winter of 1781-1782 in Philadelphia, mostly kind of relaxing and giving some advice to Congress. And he would go to the theater, and they would have these encomiums to Washington, and playwrights would write songs to the godlike Washington and all that kind of thing. So he was also it was very beloved and very famous already. And he. His, his hair has gone gray through the stress of the war, okay? But he is still just kind of a magnetic image. The cover of the book, I think, really brings that out well as a man of action. So we can remember Washington in the presidential period where he's a bit older and some of the Stuart paintings, he looks a bit frail. But during the war, he was still, you know, a, a man to be reckoned with physically as well as sort of by reputation and intellectually. Washington, I imagine, walked in that room unexpectedly, and all eyes are on him. There is a small raised dais at one end of the room in the uh, Temple of Virtue. You can actually go visit a replica of the Temple of Virtue in uh, New Windsor, New York. They have the cantonment where the army was encamped, is a state historic site. And it's not the original building. They, they rebuilt it, I think, in the 1960s or 1970s. And uh, I visited there and I stood in, in Washington spot. Although I was there in July, so I was wearing shorts and a T-shirt, so it wasn't quite the same, um, yeah. the same gravity or same gravitas I was uh, emanating as Washington would have. He probably wouldn't have needed the extra inches to get, capture everyone's attention. Washington, of course, everybody knows was tall. Although one really interesting thing I found in my research was that Washington was not necessarily uniquely tall for his time. Washington, the estimates vary, but he's between about six foot Maybe 6'2", six 6'3", six some estimates are. Uh, Washington apparently told his tailor that he was six foot tall. Huh. So that's a good indication there. But I kept coming across other men who were also six feet tall. Governor Morris was that tall. Robert Morris was that tall. One of the French admirals was like 6'4", and, you know, jokingly called Washington, my little general, huh. well, whatever the, the French <laughs> equivalent is. I'm not going to even try <laughs> the French pronunciation. I live to tell. <laughs> Yeah, live to tell, yeah. Well, they really needed the French alliance, so he couldn't couldn't get too, too angry. What I think that indicates, though, is that Washington had a kind of charisma that made him seem taller, seem larger than life to people than he was physically, right? The way he walks, the way he carries himself, the way he speaks, his excellent military bearing was certainly part of it. But you get some image there of the kind of captivating hold Washington had on others, he wasn't physically a giant. He was just above average, and you meet people who are six four, right? Six five. It happens, but it's not like he was seven foot tall or something like that, right? Yeah. We had a a, a basketball player at UCF where I teach, who uh, graduated last year, uh, Taco Fall. He's seven six. Huh, that's big. Right. <laughs> that that person, yeah. That if you ever meet him a person, that's somebody you remember forever being a lot taller than you. Washington wasn't like that. He was just, you know, above average height for his time, which if you meet men like this periodically. It's, it's not like you say, oh, my God, I met somebody who's was 6'4". Wow. So Washington has this kind of charisma and this standing. And that's what it's like when he, he walks in the room. I imagine that everybody goes silent. They're, they're stunned to see the commander in chief there. They know this is important. Washington did not address his officers as a group uh, until this moment during the war. He had smaller meetings throughout the war, councils of war, that kind of thing. there probably would have been about a hundred men gathered, and Washington had not done that previously. So you can see how everyone is impressed by the serious of the moment, seriousness of the moment, where Washington he's there, he's going to address them as a group. This is all unprecedented. And this is something where you can just imagine kind of the the electricity in the room. As the, well, they didn't have elect, real electricity in the room, but the kind of metaphorical <laughs> yeah. electricity in the room as Washington begins his speech.
0: You're enjoying my conversation with Professor David Head, author of A Crisis of Peace George Washington, the Newburgh Conspiracy, and the Fate of the American Revolution. You can visit our guest online at DavidHeadHistory.com, like him at David Head History on Facebook or follow him at David Head PhD on Twitter. David O. Stewart, who you'll find in our History Author Show archives discussing two of his books. The first, American Emperor, which I mentioned. The subtitle there is Aaron Burr, The Man Who Shot Alexander Hamilton. And the second book we chatted about is Madison's Gift, Five Partnerships That Built America. He calls a crisis of peace vividly written, and he writes that it, captures the perilous period when Washington's fundamental decency meant more to the nation than more glorious qualities might have. I called David O. Stewart to pick his brain about a crisis of peace in a little bit more detail, and he was kind enough to offer an insightful question about the big moment of the Newburgh conspiracy that you're going to describe for us now. You write that Washington opens his address by employing a rhetorical device, citing a series of paired opposites. You mentioned just there one of those qualities that people might have preferred, that he was used to addressing big crowds, that he was a great accomplished orator, and he is not. So he does not have that glorious quality, and yet he has that physical presence that he employs. And I like that General Washington uses the tools that he is born with. He doesn't try to be somebody he's not in this moment. So give us some insight into why he chose that overall strategy, why he chose the familiar sneak attack and the deception there, sending a letter convincing everybody or leading everybody to believe that he wasn't going to be there and why he chooses those instead of, say, storming into the meeting, demanding to know who'd written the Newberg letter, finding the guy and throwing him through a window. (laughs) He certainly wasn't above at Valley Forge and other places grabbing guys that weren't living up to the military discipline he expected. And he has that great moment where he holds two of them by the neck, lifts them off the ground, straight-armed. And my favorite description of it was that, he would shake them from time to time to make sure he had their attention as if George Washington holding you by the throat, foot off the ground. My mind no, might, my mind here. might wander. Did I leave the iron plugged in? You know, like, I, I don't think so. But <laughs> so give us some insight there. Why, why does he choose that overall strategy?
1: Right. So Washington could have, you know, ordered an investigation or just order the arrest of anybody suspected of being involved in, in writing the, the letter. And, You know, Washington was a harsh disciplinarian. He believed in the British model of instilling discipline with physical punishments, and he was also not shy about, you know, ordering executions. It's not necessarily something he enjoyed doing. Perhaps one of the things you're sometimes shocked about is like the number of men who were executed for desertion and other crimes during the American Revolution. So yes, those harsh punishments uh, that the hardline response was certainly something he could have done. I think though that. Washington sees that as ultimately counterproductive because word of that is going to get out, and it's going to get out to Congress, it's going to get out to the country as a whole. And once word gets out that Washington has to take these harsh measures, that there is some sort of plot against him or against civilian leadership that has been uncovered and put down, well, that's going to make things a lot worse it's going to make civilians say, aha, I knew it. I knew that the army was plotting against our freedoms. Here it is right here in the opening. Yeah. They're so brazen that they'll attack Washington himself. So that's going to undermine the credibility of the Continental Army. It might also embolden the British. You know, Washington is convinced that the war is not over. And if the British hear about this, maybe they'll see, ah, the army's in disarray. Now is our time to march out, conquer them while they are fighting amongst themselves, well, they're in disarray, and you know we can take back some of the territory maybe we're prepared to surrender, and that could change the calculation of the treaty that's negotiated. More broadly than that, Washington sees that if there's that kind of disturbance is uncovered, then this will dishonor the army, the officers, and him personally. The enlisted men mutinied all the time, In the thinking of the time, that wasn't such a big deal. People were really condescending about the common men who make up the Continental Army. They're seen as kind of rabble, right? And they, you know, they they can't help it if they get unruly and they rebel from time to time. But the officers are seen as gentlemen who are supposed to be exerting control over others. They're supposed to be motivated by ideals of honor. If they are willing to subvert all of that, to risk rebelling against civilian leadership, well, then the army never had any honor at all. Washington could see all these things happening. If word were to get out that his response is too is, is too strong. He has some letters where he says it's better to divert the torrent, the stream, the the, the rushing emotions that are driving men forward. Better to divert it than to try and dam it up, because by you know reacting too harshly, that can just make the pressure explode. So I think that's why Washington doesn't you know just cancel Armstrong's call for a meeting. He doesn't have people arrested or executed or anything like that, he just delays the meeting and gives them the opportunity to talk. In his orders delaying the meeting, he says that they will consider with mature deliberation what response is best calculated to achieve the Army's objectives. And I like that that phrase there, you know, telling them to think about this maturely, to so calm down and really think about what you're talking about. I think that ultimately Washington is convinced that the men have just kind of, their emotions have gotten the better of them, And if they have the opportunity to calm down, that will go a long way towards resolving the the crisis. Now, the question of why he feels necessary to appear is really an interesting one. I think probably Washington thinks that, well, just letting this blow over is probably not enough, that he has to do something, You know, not arrest people, but not just kind of let it go either. He needs to make a sort of personal appeal to the men. That what they really need is to talk them down, to have them come to their senses. They really need a person there to vouch for Congress's good intentions. Because the army has been promised a lot of things throughout the war by Congress, you know, going down to things like food and shelter. And that didn't arrive in any kind of, you know, anything to keep them going. They've been treated badly by Congress, by the people throughout the war. So just saying trust them again, well, their, their trust is at an end. They need somebody there to vouch for Congress. And the only person who can really do it, who they'll trust, is Washington himself. Uh, so he has to go there personally and calm them down, but also, you know, inspire their trust, saying to them, "I trust Congress. You trust me. You should trust Congress. I will work on your behalf." Now, one thing that's kind of open in my mind is asked yes, that question. And I watched you being sneaky about this. I don't know when he exactly he dis- decided to make the appearance. It's possible that at first, when he issued the orders. He wanted to let them do their own thing. Then over the subsequent days, he reconsidered and figured he better make an appearance. I don't have any good evidence either way, but I think it's open that he could have at first thought he wouldn't go. And then in meetings with some of his advisors, some of his trusted officers, they thought, well, you know, maybe I should be there and make the appeal myself instinct is a
0: lot of what he has to do, not just because he's mm-hmm. not a deep thinker, which people did accuse him of. And he wasn't a wasn't a heavily lettered man with degrees, wasn't going to college and that kind of man, but also the speed with which he had to deal with so many brush fires. It really made him hone those skills to know the right thing to do in those moments.
1: Yes. it's Washington's skill as an administrator and as a politician are very underrated. Just his political sense of if I allow this meeting to go forward, this could go really badly in any number of ways, and it could discredit the Army. A meeting or some kind of statement that comes just from the officers, it's not going to achieve the goals they think it is. It's not going to work. His political sense of what's possible and what's feasible is, is really sharp, and much sharper than, than other people, and sharper than he often gets credit for. You know, Washington, I think he can see that he has to be the one to address Congress because that's the good order of the army in relationship with civilian leadership. And also the civilians, the only one they really trust is Washington. So he really comes to see himself as the intermediary. And just kind a, of a crass political sense, nothing else will work. The officer sending a letter on their own, that's not going to work in those circumstances.
0: From the Newburgh conspiracy, if people know anything, they know that iconic moment where Washington begins to read his statement and he asks the men to forgive him that he has to take out his glasses and put them on and says, my vision has grown. What's the line that he uses? You know it exactly. So why should I paraphrase?
1: <laughs> well, there's, there, I, actually, I don't know exactly because ah. there are different. there's are slightly different <laughs> versions of it. One of them comes from a few days later. Others are remembered many years later or the person remembering it wasn't there. He heard it from others. Okay, uh, so I think people remember it slightly differently based on what was important to them in Washington's statement. So uh, the basic statement is, I've not only grown gray, but also blind in the service of my country. Or some remember it as the, in your service, meaning the officers, or in the service. So slightly different. But I think the core of it is that he's grown gray and blind during the war. As he says that uh, as he's putting on the glasses. That's the line that he uses.
0: It's interesting because you speak about the pronouns there, note them as people remember them, and it makes me think how people will say great orators. He was speaking to me. I felt he was speaking. He was looking directly at me, and everyone else in the crowd says, that's how I felt too. He, they were looking right at me and, and speaking to me. And the fact that we have words here that people take to mean a specific personal thing or people who maybe have heard it secondhand, hear it a different way, That's that's an interesting point to me. Now, that moment with the glasses was the point of David O. Stewart's question. He asked, does Professor Head think Washington planned to reach for his spectacles while giving his speech in the Temple of Virtue, or that the gesture and his remark about going blind in the service of his country were spontaneous acts?
1: Yes, so that's one of the things I spent some time trying to puzzle out. I think ultimately it's a little bit of each. So first, there's a question of when did Washington put his glasses on? So he reads his speech, and then after his speech, he reads a letter from one of the Virginia delegates to the Continental Congress, a man named Joseph Jones. Jones was a kind of a neighbor and a friend of Washington, and he wrote Washington a letter in late February 1783, kind of updating Washington on the latest that was going on in Congress. So Washington had brought that letter with him. Some accounts say that Washington put his, let his glasses on before reading his speech, and others remember it as that he put his glasses on after his speech but before reading the Jones letter. William Fowler, a Boston historian, uh, makes this argument. I, I think that's is most sensible is that Washington probably read his own speech without glasses and then put his glasses on before reading the Jones letter. And the reason for this is that if you, you can see the manuscript of Washington's uh, speech, he wrote it out in his own handwriting, in kind of a large handwriting. Okay, so he, he knew his own writing and he could see it. So if he was familiar with it. He could read that without his glasses. The manuscript itself, you can see it if you search for it. It's at the Massachusetts Historical Society's website. And it's kind of neat because they're, they're like little cross outs and places where he wrote some things in the margin and stuff like that. So it just as an artifact, it's really kind of fun to look at. So anyway, I think that's—he read that without glasses. And then he goes to read Jones's letter, which is in a smaller handwriting, a smaller piece of paper, and it's not quite as familiar. It's written more quickly. There's more kind of crossouts and stuff like that. It's harder to read if your vision has been going. Now, Washington received his first pair of glasses about a month or so—maybe not even a month, I forget, sometime in February— so he was still kind of getting used to these, these glasses, and men, no one had really seen him wear them outside of the staff at his headquarters. What I think happened was that Washington came prepared to read Jones's letter if he had to. Washington brought not just Jones's letter, but a number of other documents. And after he gave his speech and he was done talking, he left the Temple of Virtue, went back to his headquarters, and let the officers kind of deliberate on their own. Washington had brought a number of documents that he had planned to leave the officers as evidence. So here are things you can read and look over if you doubt the situation in Congress. You can read a letter from a, a delegate. So he's ready with the evidence itself. I think that's why Washington, I think if he, he had really planned from the beginning to read Jones's letter, he might have you know, written the thing out in his own handwriting, right, so that he could read it there. But he doesn't do that. So he pulls out this letter, and I think he can see that he can't read it, Right which is kind of, right, embarrassing. So he's got to get his letters. He's got to get his glasses. Now, 18th century glasses are not like glasses today where you can slip them on and off really easily. They fold and they bend all kinds of stuff so that they don't break. 18th century glasses, you have to kind of fold them out carefully and put them on the kind of arms that go around your ears. You got to kind of hook those around your your head so they stay in place, right, with the kind of spring action there. Um, It's going to take a few minutes. And, you know, part of being a gentleman is putting other people at ease when there's kind of a a moment, one of kind of life's unpleasant moments, right? Which is what life is full of, right? And I think it would have been natural for Washington to say something while he was standing there in front of this group of 100 men, kind of, you know, fiddling with his glasses to get him in the right spot and to adjust them so he can read the right focus there. So I think it would have been natural to say something. So in that sense, I think Washington came prepared in case he had to read something. He has these glasses on him. He's not just bringing these, you know, for nothing. He has glasses on him. He is prepared to read. He has the letter there. But I think in the moment, what he said was improvised. And it's something that is just kind of calculated to kind of smooth over this kind of awkward segment of dead air. And it just turns out to be just the perfect thing to say. Some, sometimes historians ask me, they, they ask me, is that for real? Did he really say that? <laughs> yeah. it, it's got to be too good to be true. I think no. I mean the, the the best account we have comes from a couple of days afterwards. And other people, you know, they they say even though their accounts come from, you know, many years afterwards, they say you know everybody in camp was talking about what he said about the glasses. So I think he really did wear the glasses. I think he really did say some version of I have grown not only gray but also blind in the service of my country. It seems too good to be true, but I think that's what he really said. And it was part planned become prepared at least to read the letter and also part spontaneous in terms of what he said and the effect that it had on his men.
0: You have a picture, by the way, of some glasses owned by Washington in A Crisis of Peace. And I flipped open the book there before I remembered that this is radio and not TV and you couldn't see it anyway. But still, (laughs) I wanted to look at them myself and get an idea of what they might have looked like. And you mentioned there about adjusting them and Reminding us that this wasn't a period when it was an exact science. Washington didn't go to lens crafters, right? He ha- would have to get ones that were just maybe good enough. They didn't have that big machine they put in his eyes or anything. So that moment and the way you describe it and as a gentleman wanting to put people at ease, that really fleshes it out for us. The moment how we would have felt watching. You You never like to watch somebody that's admired have to be humbled by something like that. And wearing glasses wasn't a great thing back then. It wasn't wasn't really something where, oh, okay, everyone wears glasses, right? Or there weren't a lot of people putting them on to look smart like we have even Homer Simpson puts on those glasses at one point. He finds right exactly, he decides it <laughs> makes him look smart. Everyone thinks he's smarter then, right? But this was a part of him where he has a great quality. And I like to think I at least cultivate that myself where you want to put people at ease. You don't want them to be embarrassed for you. And I think anyone who's been in that situation—maybe you've been injured and you you break a leg—and you don't want everyone to pity you or everyone to feel like, oh, I don't know, should we should we get up now? Should we move? Should we offer to help him? Maybe he won't want us to. To, to say something to put them at ease does seem very much like George Washington.
1: Yes, exactly. That's this is going to be a strange example, but I was just stranger
0: than Homer Simpson. <laughs> I
1: guess not. I was just, you know, listening to what you said about the kind of moment of vulnerability, something that's not in the book. I was listening recently to a book by Mike Rowe, the host of the show Dirty Jobs, that was on Discovery Channel, you know, ten, fifteen years ago. And he said one of his skills as a narrator that he had developed earlier in his career was kind of exposing kind of his vulnerability and that got audiences the kind of root with him, and he said he first picked this up when he was reading about or watching some documentary about uh, about wolves, and apparently, like 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 baby wolves, if they want to get the sympathy of the other uh, members of the wolf pack, if they're not strong enough to kind of dominate them, they'll roll over and expose their bellies. Yeah. Right. So the, another wolf can attack them and kill them, but they don't because they feel, oh, this fellow wolf, right, is being vulnerable to me, and I, you know, I kind of feel a connection with them. So that's the kind of, I guess, a rhetorical technique that Washington had employed in, in that moment, perhaps not you know, intending to know that, oh, if I, if I just show them a little bit of my vulnerability, that'll get them on my side. But that's a good example of what, what might have been happening there, that the kind of dynamic of these men who may have been hard and angry with Washington for not being strong enough in supporting them. All of a sudden they say, OK, he's, he's on our side. We need to do something for him.
0: Now, it's easy for Washington to take over a narrative. I'm sure you found that in A Crisis of Peace, but your book does have other officers, but also the politicians in the Continental Congress whose failure or inability to pay these promised pensions or inability just in general to keep the army happy, their fear of the army, that fuels some of this resentment and this griping. I figured I would choose two of those, and those are Gouverneur and Robert Morris, now, people from New Jersey know Morristown National Historic Park. They probably know the Governor Morris Hotel, which is very nice. They have some cool Revolutionary War stuff. That's a great place to stay in what they call the military capital of the American Revolution. Certainly a place you could see a lot of great Revolutionary history that we still have and preserve in the Garden State. Also, Alexander Hamilton, who I mentioned earlier, the guy who's dabbling there maybe with the with the grumblers behind the scene. He was a bit of a grumbler himself. I think anyone who's smart and a thinker and and wants to have a prominent role, they tend to sit around maybe and when you're a young man in a hurry, right? If you ever look at those old pictures of Winston Churchill as a young man, he he always looks kind of mad. Come on already. You know, I, I want to be the lion, not the cub, and I'm stuck here as a backbencher in parliament. I've seen you say that in the 18th century, people perceived any politics they didn't like as a conspiracy. And now we mentioned that earlier. You said, well, could it be that just because they covered their tracks really well? That's what fuels conspiracy theories, right? The more things you find that show it's not there, it just means the deeper this thing goes. And anytime you disagree with somebody, it's, well, you're part of it. You know, if it, as soon as you get to that moment where it's just too far and too far fetched and it's the lizard people or something, and you say, well, I don't think that's really, <laughs> oh my God, you're one of them. And so that's something I think we can relate to and it will always be part of the human condition. So, what can we learn from sifting through modern rumors by reading A Crisis of Peace?
1: So one of the things that I really hope readers will, will, will consider carefully uh, is the tendency towards conspiracy thinking. As you mentioned, I think this is part of the human condition. This is how people perceive the world, and we're not going to eliminate it completely. But just to kind of slow down when presented with the kind of conspiracy explanation of some event that's happened I think things like accident and chance and unintended consequences play an enormous role in everybody's lives and in our our sort of the public events that happen. The idea that someone is controlling everything behind the scenes, it just seems – becomes far-fetched when you start to really consider it unless, as you say, right, the absence of evidence is just the strongest case for the conspiracy because, of course, they've covered their tracks. That's just how diabolical they are. I should mention here, though, that I, I don't want to be construed as saying there's no such thing as a conspiracy. I mean, there clearly are delusions of powerful people to get their way against other people. I mean that those things do happen. There's a crime called conspiracy. So those are things that do happen. What I want to encourage people, though, to think about is to not see conspiracy as the first explanation. That's kind of one of those things where, okay, if we exhausted all the other explanations then maybe it could be a conspiracy that is something that's going on. The example of Hamilton is a good one, right? So Hamilton has this reputation of being a Machiavellian. of always kind of manipulating things behind the scenes. I think a lot of that reputation comes from the fact that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson really didn't like Hamilton. Those two lived a lot longer than Hamilton did. They lived for a long time. And they, as, as old men, they exchanged letters. And one of the things that renews their friendship. Adams and Jefferson had a falling out for a long time. One of the things that brings them closer together as old men is complaining about Hamilton and how awful he was, and how he was always out to destroy the country. (laughs) Hamilton, I think his real personality flaw is not Machiavellianism, but he's just a big mouth, a loud mouth. He can't keep things to himself, and he's impulsive, and he says the wrong thing at the wrong time. And remember he supposedly said that he thought the British Constitution was the best in the world. And you know, Jefferson seizes on this as is, is an aha moment. I I knew he was always <laughs> a monarchist plotting the destruction of the Republic. When, you know, he's probably just saying stuff and maybe he's just trying to irritate Jefferson, who he knew was there. So in that sense, I think that Hamilton's being a loudmouth is something to consider. And I think that gets us a lot further towards the truth of what happened than he was manipulating things behind the scenes. So that's the kind of thing that I want to encourage people to, to think about, to see, you know, is this my, my friend on Facebook who's, you know, purveying this explanation of how the lizard people or whatever are controlling the, the weather and all that, you know, to think, okay, what are other alternative explanations? What is an explanation based on, Unintended consequences, for example, I think gets you a lot further towards the truth oftentimes than the idea that somebody is actually intending this result from very complex world that we live in.
0: I'm glad you mentioned the gossip between Adams and Jefferson, because that's something I thought of when you mentioned earlier, reading in these letters. may well be, then as now, when you're reading those letters, that a way for you to reconcile with somebody or a way for you to ingratiate yourself with them is you say, well, isn't that guy a jerk? Because you know they already don't like them. And so this is another example in a crisis of peace where they're just like us, and they aren't always listening to their best angels any more than we are. I have time for one final question, and for that, I'd like to dig a nugget out of your acknowledgments. Okay, great. (laughs) You tell the story of a five-year-old boy whose mother praised him for being, quote, a good sport to trudge through Mount Vernon in 93-degree heat with a headache and fever. Who was that little boy, and how did his experience impact your career in history?
1: Yeah, so that, that was me. Um, <gasps> that, was a, dun, dun, that was a wonderful story that I just found that my mom had recorded in my baby book when I was growing up. My mom kept extensive records of, of all of, of me and my brothers and sisters. I'm, I'm one of six kids. Wow. So I have no idea how she did this. I mean, she would record, you know, vacations and Christmases and individual Christmas presents and all that. It's just I don't know how she did it. I found that actually a couple months before my first daughter was born. My wife and I were looking through some of that stuff. You know how you do. My mom passed away several years ago, so I don't have her around anymore to ask her about that Sorry. Um, That incident. But it was just wonderful to find. It's just completely by accident we found that story. And then I went to do research at Mount Vernon, and I ended up writing about George Washington, which is just a great thing. Becoming a historian was really through my mom's influence, and not necessarily going to historic sites like we did when we were growing up, but really just watching the way that she recorded our family history, she kept the baby books. She also would keep calendars, so she would write down things that we did every day. I have the calendars that go back to late 1970s when my, my older brother was born. You know, through all the all the kids, they start out kind of kind of sparse. I suppose when having all those kids, you can't write down a whole lot. But <laughs> yeah. once you know, we had gotten older. I mean, she filled every square inch of the calendar with something that every kid did every day. And this is when we were teenagers in 20s, you know, into their 30s, and just kind of mundane stuff, but also important stuff as well. The last couple of years, she kept like a rough draft of our activities that that rough draft calendar, and they would make it into a formal version. So just seeing how for her, you know, recording our family's history really mattered. And then we could say, well, was what did we do for Christmas of two thousand five? Was that two thousand five or two thousand six that it was really sunny and there wasn't much snow? Well, okay, well let's go look it up. Wow. That kind of thing. And just seeing that how important that was to, you know, to her and to, to be able to go back and to see, you know, the past and then kind of reinterpret, oh yeah, I remember that, or, you know, oh we didn't know, you know, what was coming next when we did that kind of thing. It's just really wonderful and I'm really grateful that I have those now and could revisit them. They're just amazing. So that's what inspired me to become a historian. I've tried to do that as well to follow her example, but I'm not nearly as vigilant or as dedicated (laughs) to doing it. I don't know what my excuse is. I only have three kids, so I don't really have an excuse.
0: And you have an iPhone and email and a laptop right there to yeah, write it down. It would be so, so much, much easier. easier. Yeah. It, in,
1: in some ways, it, it, it's too easy because you can think, "Well, I don't have to do that now. You don't have to have a dedicated time to do it." And that's really the experience I think that pushed me to seeing that that history matters. Of course, we write about George. I've written about George Washington and national things and politics and all that, but it really does matter to me and I, hopefully to other people at a very personal level. Of this is the story of our family and the things that we did that were important to us. Well, Professor David Head, I'm really glad
0: that your mother kept all of those records. I'm glad that you thought to include her in the acknowledgments and to thank her that she put you on this career path. This shows that we never know when we're writing history in our lives. So that's a perfect example. And we never know how we might influence somebody else by what we do. Here we go, she writes that down, you go there with a fever to Mount Vernon, then you end up working at Mount Vernon to write this great book, A Crisis of Peace. Thank you for joining us today to strip the rumors and myths away as much as you could from one of the most dramatic moments in the American Revolution. I wish you the best of luck with the book, and I hope readers will pick it up for a very personal, down-to-earth story
1: of the founding generation. Well, thank you very much. I've been delighted to be here today.
0: Again, the book is A Crisis of Peace, George Washington, The Newburgh Conspiracy, and The Fate of the American Republic, and The Fate of the American Revolution. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying the book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. After all, the lack of funds was one of the things that caused all this grumbling we've been talking about today. My thanks to Professor David Head for joining us and for digging into those rumors of an infamous conspiracy that aimed to strangle the American Republic in its red, white, and blue cradle. Remember to visit DavidHeadHistory.com, toss a like to David Head History on Facebook, and follow David Head, Ph.D., on Twitter. And you can always let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, Instagram at The History Author Show, or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this post-revolutionary installment of The History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a star-spangled review. Five stars, that is. Well, I think I'm just about out of colonial-era puns. So until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week.